0: When someone you love is gone, you will never forget that face. Ever. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 9. Someone he loved... Was gone, but he would never, never forget that face. I, John, your brother who shared with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos. That's what you see right there in the background. That's Patmos. I was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Follow along on the screen with me now. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw one like The Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. When someone you love is gone, you will never forget his face, even when he is dead and gone. Two weeks ago tonight, my father died. And I need to spend a moment with you reflect, reflecting on his life to somehow convey to you that he was truly a very great man that I miss him dearly. i just gotten back from L.A. In fact, I just praise God, thank you, Jesus, that our family went out a week before he died. And we had some wonderful time with Dad and Mom. Dad's been in a nursing home since the day after September 11. His mind is just Refused to coordinate his physical motions anymore. His mind has refused to give any direction, coherent direction to his speech. Although I'm convinced now that in in that body, Dad was a prisoner and that he knew everything that was going on. Look into our faces and and if we smile... He would smile back a warm smile when we would, you know, raise your eyebrow. You know how you do that, and he would he would raise his eyebrow back. And my mother got overcome with tears one of those visits, and she, she started crying. And Dad looked into her face for a long time, and then began to cry with her. I know that something was going on inside. When I would speak to Dad in Japanese, he would answer in Japanese. He could still articulate the language of of his service. Dad served. Dad served for. 18 years, mom and dad did, in the land of the rising sun. And so, used to preach and teach in Japanese. I just left. I told mom before I left, I said, Mom, I want to tell you something. Every time I see dad, he's looking fine. He's not getting worse. He's going to last, you better be prepared for it. He's going to last two more years, maybe months. Tears. My poor mother, every time I see her, she's the one that's looking worse. And she looked into my face and she said, I don't know how he can last. That was Wednesday when I told her I flew home on Friday. Friday and I got in late because I made the mistake of flying United Express and they canceled the flight from Chicago to South Bend. (laughs) Have you been there and done that? Yeah, I had to take the bus. Our bags came quarter to one in the morning. And so, Sabbath afternoon, mother calls in tears and she says, the doctor grabbed me after church and said he stopped by the nursing home on the way to church. And he doesn't think Dad will last 24 hours. I said, Mom, that's impossible. She she said, it's true. So Saturday night's a a, a haze two weeks ago tonight. Scrambled around, get Greg on the phone, Carrie on the phone. Who's going to get a ticket? And by the time I got my ticket, Mom called and said he died. And, And so when the choir was singing, you know, when I come to die... Because my dad was unconscious by the time he died. He was breathing slowly and more shallow. But mom was standing by his bedside and some dear friends of ours, Lou and Margie Venden, and their three girls who happened to be there. We grew up in Japan together. They were all holding hands around the bed and they were singing safe in the arms of Jesus. So when a choir sings today, when I come to die, I tell you what, there's somewhere in this book that says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. And I hope they're singing safe in the arms of Jesus when I die. Don't you? What's, what could be better than that? You're going to have to die someday, guys. You're going to have to die. We, I have buried college students. In my years of service in this parish, I have buried college students. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm not trying to give you a a heartache before the new year hardly commences, but you're going to die. We're all going to die. When I come to die, the choir sang. I want it just the way the choir sang. Give me Jesus at that moment. Because I believe Jesus does not fail us when we die. I believe Jesus comes down when we die. Stands with us there. So go to sleep. Go to sleep. So I got a plane early the next morning. Had two hours of sleep that night. You know, I mean, you're having to repack and do a wash and, and the whole thing. So I'm having worship on the plane I pulled out my old Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And if you're looking for a devotional book to read in your journey through this university, you probably not find a better devotional book than My Utmost for His Highest. I've been reading it every day since 1988. And the, the morning of August 18, I read it and Oswald Chambers' two words, expressionless sorrow. And I have come to realize... That that's exactly how sorrow and grief happen. It's expressionless. When you want to cry, you really want to cry, you you can't. There's just nothing there. Your heart is just, just like steel. When you don't want to cry, suddenly something comes bubbling to the surface and emotion overcomes you. And... Sorrow is expressionless because how you've seen it on TV or how you see other people grieve, it suddenly you wake up and find out you're not wired that way and you don't grieve the same way. And sometimes you feel guilty like, well, maybe I should be grieving more like she is or like he is. You can't grieve like anybody else. It's it's an expressionless sorrow. It's an inarticulate pain that sits upon your chest. You cannot give words to it, it just is there. So go ahead. And embrace the sorrow. And embrace the uniqueness of God sorrowing through you. You will sorrow in a unique way. You've had a terrible loss. God sorrowed through you. You don't have to sorrow like anybody else. Just be yourself. Let it be expressionless. People come up and they say nice things. Give them a hug. Thank them. Those nice words, those heartfelt words will go a long way beyond the moment. It's an expression of sorrow. It's okay. It's okay. You just be yourself. We've had students here who've lost their parents while they're here. When my day comes, when I come to die, Jesus Just give me Jesus. I want Jesus. And I got there, Greg and Carrie. You know Greg, who was with us for the week of prayer this last winter from Seattle. Carrie's, Carrie's... Married to a pastor up near Seattle. i got to tell you, my dad had a profound impact on our lives as kids. We are a very uncreative family. (laughs) My dad is a minister and he married a beautiful nurse, my mother. So I figured that's what you're supposed to do. I became a minister and I married a beautiful nurse. Greg saw two of us. He said, well, that must be what we're supposed to do. So he became a minister and he married a beautiful nurse. (laughs) Carrie came along and said, well, I'll become a nurse. And she married a minister. And so we're... (laughs) We, we are very uncreative in the Nelson family. I, I'm sorry for that, but that's just some families really get the short shrift and that's our family. But we were all proud of our dad. Dad was a, you know, when I got up to speak at his memorial service Wednesday at Calamasa Church. And I said, oh man, there's, I read leadership literature these days and there's a word being bantered about that goes like this, mentor, M-E-N-T-O-R. But if you want to really know what mentor means, you can spell it this way, H-E-R-O. And my dad was my hero all through my life. I wanted to be like dad. I said, I shared with the group there, there were three characteristics of my dad that i I want to emulate for the rest of my life. Number one was dad's humility. My dad worked, grew up in the system. His dad was an administrator. His uh, grandfather-in-law was an administrator. I mean, just there's administration in our family, in the church. And, but my dad, I watched my dad. And I watched my dad not choose to climb the ecclesiastical ladder for the sake of position and influence. He made decisions based on his family. And I have admired that. I don't have that virtue of humility. I have admired it in Dad and I realize it's a weakness of my own that I need to emulate. And by the grace of God, I want to be like my dad. I want that humility. My dad had a passion when he preached. You never walked out of my dad's sermons and wondered, did that man really believe what he just told us? My dad had a passion. I've heard every sermon he ever wrote sitting on the front row of every church in Japan. i memorized those sermons. And I said, when I grow up, I want to be like my dad. And my dad used to sing. He used to sing about Jesus. He just had, uh, just the word Jesus. He was always singing about Jesus when he was shaving. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. you know, the name I know. I'd hear him every morning, my dad singing. My family all tells me that I've inherited my dad's voice. Fine with me? My mother said, Paul, you have a billy goat vibrato. Well, so what's wrong with a billy goat vibrato? I got one too. It really sounds nice. So we went out. Greg and Carrie coming down and I'm coming back to L.A. where I'd just been hours earlier, L.A.X. and We met at the funeral home. Mom and Dad made the decision to be cremated. I have people that come to me and they say, you know, Dwight, should we be cremated? Is God against cremation? No, He's not against cremation. God doesn't care how you go. Once you're gone, you're gone. doesn't matter a bit to Him. won't change a thing into your eternity and your destiny. Nothing wrong with it. And for the sake of preserving what little, uh, what little uh, uh, estate they have, they made the decision to save a little money. We'll, we'll, we'll both be cremated. Now, in California, there's a law. You can't just stay there as a body for long. You have to be cremated within a certain amount of time. They allow the family one visit. It's called the identification visit. Is this the deceased kind of thing? And it's an act of grace. They give the family one last time. But on the night, the midnight phone calls back and forth. We made the decision. Mom, no, please have Dad embalmed. The grandkids need closure, not just the kids, the grandkids. And I am so I thank God to this day we made that decision. Of course, it cost you know a few more dollars, but it was worth it because my boy Kirk really has taken this death hard. He just was sobbing and sobbing over that casket that remains. And I realized that that was something that needed to happen and that God was doing his thing in the midst of grief and death. And, but we went to the visitation in the funeral home. And I'm not going to draw this on. much more than an hour. Uh, I just want to see if you are still with me. We went to the. We went into. They have a little room for you know people to to go. And you know they had not changed, Dad. Nothing. He's still in his pajamas, just exactly as he left. A little something under his head to keep his head straight. But he he looked, and I tell you, and you hear this all the time. No, no makeup, nothing. This is just Dad. And he had, and I tell you the truth, almost this beatific, just this, just this peaceful. Spirit. Just a slight upturn on his lips, like he died in peace. And of course, for some of this my siblings, has been the first time they've seen Dad in months, and and uh you know, I now know what the Bible describes. It says, When Joseph came and he found his father Jacob dead, he fell upon him and wept. Just, just a natural response. A family that realizes this is a moment of permanent parting, and so you know, my poor mother, of course we're all in tears, but my mother, I'm thinking about my mother who must go on without a life companion. I'll tell you what Dad's death how dad's death came to mom. C.S. Lewis wrote a letter once to Sheldon Van Alken, a friend of his from Oxford days, a young American scholar that got to know C.S. Lewis. Upon the death of Sheldon's wife, Davy, Lewis wrote a letter in which he described Davy died of cancer. Lewis described that Davy's death to Sheldon as a severe mercy. A severe mercy. Sheldon Van Alken went on to write a love story of his wife. And him, and if you could, the book is by that same title, A Severe Mercy. You will never read a greater love story in all your life. They began as atheists, and how, after they got married, they became Christians. They met C.S. Lewis. It's just a powerful story. But death sometimes comes just that way. It's a severe mercy. It's severe because look, you don't want death to come. There's a finality. You can't turn it around. The one you love is cold. I mean, room temperature cold. There is nothing there. There is nothing. There's not a spark. There is. It's zero. It's just inanimate. It's inanimate. Organic. Organic. Nothing. It's Just the remains. And it's severe. But I want to tell you something. Death sometimes comes as a severe mercy. And as I told you, Mother weighed down so much. The time, God in His grace. The doctors cannot explain how Dad was healthy when we saw him. And in one week, in a period of 24 hours, every system shut down and he died. He just, just quit breathing. Slower and slower and stopped. That was a merciful act of God. Because God said, you know what? There is no point in this friend of mine going on and on and on. And Barbara, there's no point in you bearing this any longer. Paul has done his work even in this nursing home. I have received his ministry. Now I let him sleep. And so for my mother, a severe mercy. When someone you love is gone, you never Forget his face. It was that way for John. I, John, your brother, verse 9 of Revelation 1. I, John, your brother who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I don't know if it was early on a Sabbath morning that... This is old John. This is the one who was probably 17 or 18. Get that. Scholars believe John was probably in his late teens when Jesus called him. Your age! Your age! 17 or 18, this is the same John. He's the last of the Mohegans now. They have all died. Eleven of his companions, are they died violent deaths in martyrdom. John's the last one, and I love this picture. Do we have it on the screen? Have you already put it up already? Oh, I love this picture. Harry Anderson's depiction of John. Look, just take a look at that. John on the Isle of Patmos. Old oh, man with his beard. You know, legend says that they, Domitian the Emperor threw him in a Cauldron of boiling oil and he didn't die. God miraculously preserved him. How do you explain how God miraculously preserves John and lets all the other eleven die? You can't explain death. Not until we get to heaven will you know why somebody dies and somebody doesn't. There's no rational reason. Only God will know someday and tell us one day. But there's John. John gazing out over the azure waters of that rocky penal colony. That outcropping in the blue and green azure waters of the Aegean Sea. I, John, was in prison, as it were, on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. When someone you love is gone, you never forget his face. John, the last of the last. Oh, John remembers. John was just a boy. But how could John ever forget the face of Jesus wrinkled in laughter? His eyes twinkling. As John stood behind Jesus and all the disciples behind John, and they watched as the servants with dumbfounded eyes bulging out amazement watched the master of ceremonies at the wedding, you remember? Tilt the glass of water back and drink it down and then say, Guys, I have never had wine as good as this. And Jesus' face broke into a grin and John locked that face, the face of laughter in his mind. John, when someone you love is gone, you never forget the face. And John remembers, John remembers the face of tears because Jesus knew how to cry. He was a man, but he cried. John saw Jesus in front of the crowd standing by a sepulcher where they've, where they've opened the, the rock and the body has been room temperature now for four days. And Jesus burst into tears. John saw those tears. Jesus, who stands by every sepulcher, whether you're cremated or not, and weeps with the survivors. John saw the face of tears. John, John saw the face of pain. And that torch lit up a room. They're all reclining around the table for the Passover, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus turns into the face, faces of these twelve, the closest in all of this life to Him. And, and Jesus says, one of you will betray Me, one of you will deny Me, and all of you will desert Me tonight. And He saw the pain etched in that face. John saw the face of death. John watched as they brutalized His Master. Look at that picture as they brutalized the Master to the cross. The others couldn't stand it any longer, and they left, but John dragged himself back. John was there when that hard-hearted Roman legionnaire thrust the cold spearhead, puncturing Jesus' side, piercing through to the heart, and John said, I saw the plasma and the blood. I saw it. I saw him die. I know he was dead. John was there all alone, Mary sobbing, Jesus' mother committed to him. Mary has been taken away. John is all alone when he hears the huffing and puffing of two big men, prelates, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who, breathing hard, come up behind young John Boy, clutching in their hands a few spices for a hasty embalming before a quick burial. And fortunately, John Boy is there because they need a youthful arm. As he goes up and helps them extricate the now lifeless body and I love this from Desire of Ages describing that moment the three of them gently and reverently they remove with their own hands the body of Jesus from the cross their tears of sympathy fell fast as they looked upon his bruised and lacerated form. The three disciples strangled the mangled limbs. There's been no, op- there's been no embalming, nothing, nothing to keep the body tight. You have to just keep pulling that hand over. When the hand that you love, you hold it in your hand and it slides down, you pull it back up. They were there and folded the bruised hands upon the pulseless breast. You never forget. You will never forget that as long as you live. John saw the face of death, face of laughter, face of tears, face of pain, face of death. But John was there in that electric moment, three days later, when the same Jesus walks through the walls in their dumbfounded and panicked mist. And he raises his hands and he says, peace, it's me. Do you have anything to eat? I'm hungry. In the wild pandemonium, I know that John presses his way through that flesh and he reaches up and he touches the face. Because when you've touched a face that is dead and you've kissed those cold cheeks, you have to know for sure that this face is alive. And he touches the face of Jesus and Jesus, smiling into John Boy's face, reaches out and he grabs his cheeks. It is, I am alive. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. John, when someone you love is dead and gone, you will never, ever forget that face. And that's why this is, this is such a poignant moment. He, he, he's in this moment of reverie on the Isle of Patmos. Where's the picture of Patmos? He's sitting on a rock somewhere. One of those rocks. It wasn't a cave. It was out, out just looking across the sea. And he's in meditation He's communicating to his friend and Savior and Lord and God forever and ever, Amen. And he hasn't even gotten the Amen out when like a trumpet, there's a boom voice behind him. The old man practically flips. He spins around on that rock and he's looking into the face. Oh, what a different face. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I saw His face. I want to push the pause button right here. This is a journey you and I will spend a whole year... in. Undertaking, so no, no farther in the apocalypse than right here. I want to put the pause button here because I, those words, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I saw His face. You know what? I read a book this summer. I read a book in the month of August. Got it from my parents' library. I have the book right here. Oh, you'll never read a book much greater than this. Written by the, the most well-known, probably the greatest Japanese writer in the twentieth century. His name? Shusaka Endo. You've heard of Endo. Philip Yancey describes the thirteen most influential people on earth to his development, and Endo was one of the thirteen. Shusaku Endo. So I grabbed the book and I read it, and I've read it again, and I'm telling you, I'm amazed. There's something in this book that I have not experienced, and I said, God, I see it here with John. I see it here. Endo, by the way, was a Roman Catholic writer. He was a Christian. He tried desperately in his books to communicate his Christian faith to a Buddhist and, and, and Shinto society. And so he kept weaving, weaving the faith into the stories. This, this book is called Silence. It's the story of two Portuguese missionaries in 1637. One of them, one of them named Sebastian Rodriguez. These two missionaries come into Japan at a terrible time. Xavier uh, Francisco Xavier, Xavier, as the Portuguese would say, Francisco Xavier had gone to Japan at the late, late, late 1500s. 400,000 Japanese had become Christians at this time. It's an amazing story. But then a warlord arose, and some of the warlords had become Christian. But this, I'll put the picture on the screen. Ieyasu, the warlord, the samurai warlord Ieyasu, said, "I'm going to crush this. Por-. This is Portugal trying to take over Japan. That's all it is. It's a front." And he began to execute and martyr the Christians by the tens of thousands. The whole plot is these two Portuguese clerics who land on a clandestine mission to try to reach this island. Priests are apostatizing. And one of these two, I won't tell you which one, one of them ends up apostatizing. Powerful drama. And the reason it's called silence is because in the midst of human suffering, why is it so often that God is silent? We don't hear him. But this Sebastian Rodriguez, the character here, based on a historical figure, he had a practice, and I want to share this practice, because, and we'll end with this. I I wish this practice would be my practice. I wish I could enter into my devotional worship like this. Let me read this. On the wall, he's hiding in a house in Japan. On the wall is a great big cockroach. Its rasping noise breaks the solemn silence of the night. And then he recalls the words of Jesus. Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Such were the words he's reflecting. The words of the risen Christ to the disciples assembled for supper. And now as I obey this injunction, the face of Christ rises before my eyes. Now watch what he does with the face of Christ. What did the face of Christ look like? He's hiding and he's wondering, what did the face of Christ look like? This point the Bible passes over in silence. Yet tonight for me the face is that of one pictured and preserved in a church back home in Portugal. There still remains fresh in my memory the time when I saw this picture as a seminarian for the first time. Christ has one foot in the sepulcher and in His right hand He holds a crucifix. He is staring straight out in His face, bears the expression of encouragement it had when He commanded His disciples, Feed my lambs. It is a face, He concludes, filled with vigor and strength. I feel great love for that face. Now listen to this. I am always fascinated by the face of Christ just like a man fascinated by the face of His Beloved. Six times, I went through and marked them. the second time through the book, six times he describes this ability to conjure up the face of Christ. And I thought to myself, what is the problem with my own devotional prayer life? Why is it that I am so left-brained when I pray? When I pray, I just have these faceless words that just line up, and I, they're going through my mind, and then I'm trying to pray them to God. And here is Sebastian Rodriguez, who when he stops to meditate in a time of, Danger and a moment of, of serenity. The, he, he conjures up the face of Jesus. Why am I so left brain when a right brain kind of response could lock me onto a face? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I saw Jesus' face. You know, I'm thinking. I'm just thinking. What would happen if this new year we became a campus that sought the face? of Jesus every day. That we had our own quiet moments of reverie in the corner of a dormitory room, down in the lobby hall because you have to keep it quiet in that room or can't turn the light on, on a walk, in the corner of a bedroom, but we have a moment in an office where we are alone with Jesus and rather than just left brain, read, 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 we actually turn off the words and we ask that Jesus might, Jesus might reveal His face to us. Look, we sing that chorus: "Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full. How's it go? Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace." What would happen if, in our classrooms, the face of Jesus somehow, somehow got etched in our dormitory rooms, in our administrative boardrooms, out in the community? What would happen if we hungered like John? You know, when when someone you love is gone, you cannot forget his face. Do you love Jesus? Do you? Do you love Jesus? I mean, if Jesus stood in front of you right now and He said, Peter, do you love me? That's the way John's book ends. What would you say? Would you say yes? Would you say, you know, Lord, I grew up in a church these first years of my life. I've heard a lot about you, but Lord Jesus, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel anything for you. Do you love Jesus? When someone you love is gone, you, nev- you won't forget His face. I promise. What would happen if you pull an- your own edition of the Apocalypse down and you went back to this picture of Jesus? We've got some breathtaking pictures of Jesus we're going to watch on this school year journey. You will never be the same again for this journey into the Apocalypse. I promise you. But what if we right here at the outset said, Oh, Jesus, please, I want to see your face. Let it be the face in Revelation 1 if you can't conjure up another. Take any artwork you wish, but let the face come. And then, instead of being filled with words yourself, listen to the face. Let the face speak to you. I missed my dad's last words. I can't believe it. Sunday night. Last time I saw my dad. We've gone up. We're going to leave 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday. And so we're there in the nursing home and Dad's sh- shock of white hair and then I-, I shaved him with his electric razor. We visited together. Had worship and prayer. And I'm walking out of the uh, out of the nursing home room and you know when you're lying under sheets and you're lying on your back, your feet are pointed up. You know that, don't you? So the... Those feet are pointed up and they're sticking up in the sheets. So I'm walking out and I grab my dad's toes for the last time and I grab his toes and I say, Love you, Dad. And with that, I turn right around and escort my mother out of the room. Karen was behind me and she saw it all. My dad watched. Who's this pulling my toes? He watched. He knew it was. And when I walked out of the room, He said, love you. And I missed it. I missed it. Karen heard it. When you conjure up that face, don't hurry out of the room. Stay there long enough so that when you say, love you, Jesus, you will hear Him say to you, I love you too. I love you, too.